Well, on October 31st, 1517, a young professor of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg in Germany nailed the 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. It was sort of like a community bulletin board. Different kinds of announcements and such were were put there. Now, Luther wanted to encourage academic debate about the sale of indulgences. Uh, He had written the document in Latin. The, The people of the day in Germany spoke German. They didn't speak Latin. So this was a document that was really meant to encourage debate among the academics. And the question was indulgences. Well, what are indulgences? Indulgences were sold by the Roman Catholic Church to shorten time in purgatory. So let's say you purchased an indulgence. That would give you a hope of having a much shorter time in purgatory and give you more time in heaven. And basically, the the Roman Catholic Church teaches that purgatory is the intermediate state that believers go to until the rest of their sins are purged and they're cleansed and purified and they're prepared to be in the presence of God. And so during the time of Luther, there there were all kinds of, of thoughts about how terrible purgatory was, how purgatory was a place of intense suffering and how it went on and on and on. And so there was a sense in which people really were fearful of being in purgatory and fearful of the length of time they would have to spend in this terrible place until they could go and be in the presence of God, until they could go and be in heaven. And so there was a sense in which indulgence has sort of scratched an itch. People were fearful of this. We could buy an indulgence. It's like buying an insurance policy. We, we buy an indulgence, and then we can know we're not going to have to be there that long. And not only might we get ourselves out of purgatory, well, guess what? We can get grandma out too. And great-grandma, let's suppose that great-grandma passed away uh, several years ago and grandma a few years back. Well, if we really love them, surely we're going to pay some money and help them get out of purgatory quicker and get into the presence of God in heaven quicker. And so the, the church was selling these indulgences and Luther was really uncomfortable with this. He felt like it had no basis in scripture. And so there was a fellow named Johann Tetzel. He was a Dominican friar And he was responsible for selling indulgences in the nation of Germany. So he came into the area near where Luther was at. And some of the people who were a part of Luther's church, they began to buy indulgences. And they told Luther, we're really not worried about repenting of our sins. We're not too worried about that because we have bought indulgences and we're good. We have nothing to worry about. And Luther, of course, had a heart of concern for them. Why? Because... Luther was worried that they had a false assurance, a false hope that they were buying something that couldn't be bought. And of course, there was also the the issue of financial exploitation, that that in many ways the people were being, being exploited by the church. Now, Tetzel was a great marketer, and he had developed a clever little jingle that goes like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings... The soul from Purgatory Springs. Now, doesn't that just sort of roll off your lips? He, he put that together, and it was made to appeal t- to the common people. Come on, you put a coin in this coffer, and great-grandma's in heaven. What, what, kind of, what kind of better deal could you get than that? And there was also a sense in which the people liked the idea of indulgences because it sort of was like paying for your sin. You know what? I can have this guilty pleasure, and I'll just sort of buy my way out of trouble. 
It's all good. I can have some assurance. I'm good. I can do what I want. And then I can pay my way out. And Luther knew it wasn't right. Luther knew that this was not okay. And what happened, not really Luther's plan, but, but these 95 theses were translated from Latin into German. And, and of course, the printing press was, was new technology at the time. And they were printed and distributed widely. And this set off what would become the Protestant Reformation. In these 95 theses, Luther argued that the Pope had no authority over purgatory and how long people spent in purgatory. And he said that if the Pope did have that kind of authority, then he ought to empty the place, just empty it. Luther's 27th thesis stated, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory as soon as the money clinks in the collecting box. That was his 27th Theses. In the 95 Theses, Luther raises a critical question. It is the question of authority. It's the question of authority. On what basis does the church make a claim like this? On what basis does the church sell indulgences? The real issue at the heart of it was, what does God say? And who speaks for God? And how do we know how to live? Is, should we buy indulgences or should we not? And how can we know? That, that was the real issue. What is the authority of our lives? Well, this morning as we begin this, this series on the Reformation for the next five Sundays, as we think about how Reformation theology or the teachings of the Reformation still shape and influence the church today, some 500 years after the fact, we're going to spend some time looking in 2 Peter chapter 1, as we think about the question of authority, as we think about what has God said. Now, Peter was written by the apostle Peter around AD 68. Likely he was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote this letter and he was soon to be put to death. In fact, tradition suggests that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith. In 2 Peter, if you read the book, you're going you're to get a sense in which Peter is very concerned about false teachings, about false teachers. And this is the, the major theme for the book. Now, some had apparently been suggesting that Jesus wasn't going to come back, that he wasn't going to return. Remember that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, came back to life, made all of these resurrection appearances or appearances after the resurrection, and then he was ascended. He was taken back up into heaven. But the scriptures tell us that one day he's going to return, and we still wait for the return of Christ. But in Peter's time, there were some apparently who were saying, he's not coming back. You guys made that up. Nothing's changed. He, he's not coming back. And so Peter is writing in the passage that we're going to read today, addressing that teaching. And Peter is clear. You'll see as, as we look at today's passage that the word that is given by God is a certain word. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we see that Scripture alone is the Word of God. Scripture alone is the Word of God. In verse 16, Peter says, when we told you about the power and the coming of Jesus, when, you to- when we told you about what Jesus did and about how he's going to return again, about something we knew, we were eyewitnesses of, of, of Christ's work and of what was happening uh, with Christ. In other words, he's saying we weren't making these stories up. This is not Harry Potter. This was real. We, we saw this. We were eyewitnesses of what we're telling you. In verses 17 and 18, Peter gives an example of what he was a witness of. He talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, the scriptures say, again, this is back when Jesus was transfigured, before his death and during his earthly ministry. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Matthew 17, 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what we see at the transfiguration is that that God was showing these three disciples a glimpse of Jesus' glory, a glimpse of of Jesus reigning in, in, in heavenly glory. And when the Father says, This is my Son, well, that's an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And in this Psalm, the messianic king is being addressed. So here the father is saying about Jesus, the son, he is the Messiah, he is the king. And also this is an allusion to Isaiah 42.1 when he says, with whom I'm well pleased. That, that's from Isaiah 42.1 and it's a reference to the suffering servant. Jesus would come as a servant who would suffer to rescue God's people. And so the father is saying, when he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he is saying, he is the Messiah, he's the king, he is the suffering servant that I've called. So that's that's Psalm 2, verse 6. Notice that, that the transfiguration occurred, Peter says here, on a holy mountain. We don't know the location of the mountain, but what we do see in Psalm 2, verse 7, remember we just talked about Psalm 2, verse 6, but in Psalm 2, verse 7, we see that this is an allusion to the king. This is... God speaking to the king. And so once again, we see an emphasis on, or pardon me, Psalm 2, verse 6. Uh, we see an, the fact that Jesus is the king reinforced and emphasized in the words of the Father. So in many ways, the transfiguration is sort of an opening up of heaven. And, and the disciples are getting to see, these three disciples are getting to see how glorious Jesus is. And Peter is saying to his readers, look, we saw the the Jesus who's going to return. We saw the Jesus who will come with all of his glory. We saw his majesty. You say that he's not returning, but we saw a glimpse of heaven with him reigning, with, with him in his amazing power and brilliance. So don't say that he's not going to return. We've already seen a glimpse of what that is going to be like. But what is Peter saying? He's saying to his readers, you can take this to the bank. We were eyewitnesses. This is something that really happened in history. This is something that happened at a real place at a real time. 
We, we were eyewitnesses of this fact. What, what God says is true. He said we didn't make up clever stories. We didn't come up with our own ideas or, or opinions. No, we're telling you what we saw about Jesus with our own eyes. Now, in July of 1519, again, this is a couple years after, uh, nearly two years after Luther first nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, uh, Luther has a debate with a respected Roman Catholic theologian, Johann Eck. Now, Johann Eck uh, was a fellow that Luther was not fond of. In fact, Luther had a very colorful speech. It's fun to read Luther quotes. And this is what he called Eck, that little glory-hungry beast. That was his his uh, description of, of the man that he was debating. Eck was a really gifted debater. And he basically, in the midst of this debate, backed Luther into a corner. And he got Luther to admit that you couldn't trust the Pope's authority and you couldn't trust the authority of a church council. Now, a church council is when there was a dispute in the church, the church would get together and they would, the, the leaders of the church would get together and they would make a decision and sort of say, this is what the scriptures say or this is how it is. And Luther said, you can't necessarily trust the Pope. You can't necessarily trust the church council. They could be wrong. In this debate, Luther argues that Scripture is the norm by which all else must be judged. In Latin, he says that Scripture is the norma normans. In other words, it's the determining norm. I'm going to take the councils of the church and what they say, and I'm going to take what the Pope says, and I'm going to measure it by Scripture. I'm going to hold Scripture up and ask, is this faithful to the Word of God? And if it's not, I'm going to say that it's wrong. Now, in the close of the debate, Luther uh, concluded with these colorful words, I am sorry that the learned doctor, and of course there he's talking about Eck, only dips into the scripture as a water spider into the water. Nay, that he seems to flee from it as the devil from the cross. I prefer with all deference to the fathers. In other words, I prefer with respect to the church fathers, with respect to to the traditions of the church, I prefer the authority of the scriptures, which I herewith recommend to the arbiters of our cause. What did Luther say? He said, the man that I've been debating with just barely touches Scripture every now and then. In fact, he flees from Scripture as the devil flees from the cross. But he said, with respect to tradition, I am committed to the Word of God. That's what Luther says. He says it quite plainly. Now, let's think about what Peter has just been talking about. Peter is saying, you know what? What is written here isn't clever stories that people have come up with. This is the very word of God. It's the very word of God. You can take it to the bank. I I saw the things that, that I'm telling you about. This is what God spoke. This is what God said. Look in verse 19. Not only did Peter witness the ministry of Jesus firsthand, Peter says that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. You see, the the words of God is given in the Old Testament. We can have complete assurance that what God has said is true because he spoke from the prophets and he told about how Jesus would come and how he would rescue his people. And so Peter is saying here, we already knew about Jesus. We can look back to the the writings of the prophets and we can know this is true, that the scriptures teach that, that they, they confirm that. But notice what he says, pay attention to the scriptures. Pay attention to the scriptures. Can't you hear Luther saying the very same thing? Listen to the scriptures. They are the word of God. He says that the scripture is like a light 
shining into the dark, into the darkness, into a dark place. So the light of God's word shines into the darkness, brings God's hope and life into the the places of darkness and brokenness. And he goes on to say, until the day dawns. And here's a reference to until Jesus returns. Again, Peter is saying to his audience, Jesus is gonna return. Take it to the bank, it's gonna happen. And then he goes on to say, until the morning star rises in your heart. And the word in Greek for morning star is the word phosphorus. You probably recognize that word. It means bringer of light. And, and it was a celestial body that, that rose just before sunrise. They believe uh, maybe that it was the planet Venus. But what Peter is saying is that Jesus is the bringer of light and life. The word is true. You can count on what the word says. Pay attention to the word. Get your life right with Jesus. He says, notice that he says, until his word rises in your heart. There's a personal element there. When Jesus returns, he will rise in the hearts of his people. In a sense, his people will be transformed by him. This is a reminder that every person must know Christ personally. That every person, as Jesus would say to Nicodemus, must be born again. You can't just come to church. And because you come to church, you're not made right with God. You can't do a religious ritual or be a pretty good person. None of those things will place Jesus as the ruler of your heart. There's only one way for Jesus to be the ruler of your heart, and that is to turn away from your sin and to call out to Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, I believe you came and lived the perfect life. You died a death that you didn't deserve. You took the punishment for my sin upon yourself. You were buried and you were raised again, and I want to follow you. See, the scriptures are clear. Every one of us must have that sort of personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. And when we do, the Bible teaches that we're saved. The Bible teaches us that we're saved for all eternity. Look at verse 20 and 21. Peter says, we can know this with certainty. What the prophets wrote, none of them wrote it based on their own thinking, based on their own uh, uh, cleverness. He says, scripture came by the work of God. Scripture is God carrying along men by the Holy Spirit. This was a term, this carrying along idea was a term that was used uh, in in nautical language. In other words, for a sailboat, when the wind would would catch a sailboat and cause that boat to to move, this is the kind of language that that Peter's using here. The Spirit would would fill a, a man and he would write the words of God. Now, God used, of course, the writer's vocabularies and personalities uh, that the words of Scripture are written with... uh, each writer's own unique ability and, and vocabulary. But what we believe about Scripture, what Scripture testifies about itself is that God used these men to, to, to record, to, to bring about the very word of God for us. And so while there's a divine and a human element, we believe that the book is truly God's word for us. How amazing to say that God has spoken that he's spoken to us. What an incredible blessing. What, what is something we should shout about and be excited about? That the God who created us loved us enough to speak, loved us enough to not leave us alone. So because we believe that the scripture alone is the word of God, let's think about the implications of that for our lives. First, scripture is absolutely true. That's what Peter says clearly. Not only him, but, but Paul says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture's God-breathed. 
The scriptures come from God himself. In the original writings, the scriptures were without error. God spoke, and, and by God's providence, men were able to record the scriptures, and there, there was no error. There was no mistake. And by God's kind providence through the years, through the copies of the, the original autographs that have been made, we can say by God's kind providence that we hold a Bible that is without error. Sure, there, there are errors within the copies. The scriptures never promise us that copies of scriptures won't have errors in them. But when you compare all the copies together and you look, you can see what the original said. With 99% certainty, we can be sure that we have what the authors originally penned. So we can hold up this book and by God's good and kind providence, we can say that this is the inerrant word of God. What an incredible kindness that God has preserved his word for us, that, that we can have his word. Hebrews six eighteen reminds us that it is impossible for God to lie. So we believe that God has spoken and that God has spoken truthfully. What if science urges us to abandon biblical truth? What if science tells us you can't believe that? It's impossible because science has proven that this is wrong. Well, brothers and sisters, we believe the scripture is the ultimate authority. We believe it's absolutely true. And so I'm gonna stick with the book. Now, it's not to say that, that we don't examine the claims. We need to interact critically with the claims of science. I believe the truth can withstand scrutiny. So, so I believe that if the word is true, and I certainly believe it is, that, that it can withstand the accusations and, and scrutiny of, of folks who don't believe it. And we ought to be interacting with those arguments and, and working through those arguments. Now, what if culture tries to push us to begin to, to reject the clear teachings of Scripture and to, to hold to other positions? Do we hold our hands up and go, yeah, there's probably mistakes in there. Let's just kind of go with culture? No. We believe that God has spoken, and we believe that he has not lied. We believe that we have the truth, and so we're going to say we're sticking with the book so let the Bible shape your view of the world. Let the Bible shape how you see things because it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. Number two, Scripture is the ultimate authority in our lives. Scripture is the ultimate authority. Notice that I didn't say that Scripture was the only authority. The reformers, Luther and others, they respected the writings of the early church fathers and, and of uh, statements that had been made by, by leaders in the church, such as the Nicene Creed. They, they respected those. But for the reformers, those things always stood underneath the word. The word was of ultimate authority, and those things must be judged by the word of God. Luther said that all creeds and church councils can never sit in judgment on the word, but that the word must always sit in judgment upon them. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, Today, just, as there, just at the time of the Reformation, there were two sources of authority. Scripture was considered authoritative, and Scripture was considered true. So Luther and other Reformers didn't get in trouble by saying Scripture is true. What they got in trouble is by saying Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the authority. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, Scripture and tradition are equal. So, so the writings of the church fathers and statements that the Pope makes authoritatively, those are considered to be the very word of God, just like the Bible is. For example, in 1854, Pope Pius IX announced the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That was a brand new doctrine. 
happened in 1854. In 1950, Pope Pius XII proclaimed the bodily assumption of Mary. You, you won't find those things in here, but church tradition is considered just as authoritative as the word of God. In fact, the catechism of the Catholic Church states this, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Scripture, church tradition, equal. What the Reformers were saying is, we're not buying it. The Word of God stands in judgment over all. That's what the Reformers were saying. I think it's a message that's clearly faithful with Scripture itself. So, uh, as, we, as we think about this, in Roman Catholicism, tradition becomes authoritative. In liberal Protestantism, there's a lot of churches that, that have drifted away from Scripture alone and what they've allowed to be the top or, or to be overall is reason. They will say, well, it's crazy that, that the Bible would say this. It can't be real. So human reason becomes the ultimate arbiter of what's true. And so what happens is Scripture is put underneath human reason. Now, don't misunderstand me. Reason is a gift from God. We should, we should use the reason that God has given us. But we have to recognize that our reason has been affected by the fall. Our thinking has been affected by the fall. So we can't count on our reason to take us higher than the very word of God. Our reason must ultimately submit to the word of God. The word of God cannot and will not submit to human reason. That's the mistake that many liberal Protestants have made. They've abandoned the, the truths of Scripture because they've said it just can't be this way. It, it just can't be. Uh, so, as you think about biblical Christianity, this is what it says. The Word of God has ultimate authority. On June 15, 1520, so now we're, we're just a few years after uh, a little over two years after uh, Luther first nailed uh, those theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg, Pope Leo issued a papal bull or a proclamation. And this is what he said. Luther is excommunicated and he is condemned as a heretic. And you know what Luther did? He took that papal bull and he got out in the public and he set it on fire. And you know what he was saying? He was making a statement about authority. He was saying to the people, the word of God is my authority. The word of God is my authority. That's, that's what Luther was saying. That's why he set uh, that papal bull on fire. Scripture is the ultimate authority. Number three, Scripture is sufficient for guiding us in how to know God and how to follow him. It's sufficient in guiding us in how to know God. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What does that mean? That means we need to be weary or careful about going to secular sources to figure out how to live. So if I want to know how to live my life, I'm not going to Dr. Phil and saying, how do I live? I'm not going to Oprah or some other self-help guru and ask, how do I live? I'm going to the word. I'm studying the word. I'm reading the word. And I'm letting the word speak to me and shape me and change me because the, the word gives us all that we need to live a godly and, 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 and good life, a life that honors God and is pleasing to him. It's sufficient. It's enough. 
We also need to be careful about just generically going to counseling. It's entirely possible that we will go to a counselor who is completely opposed to, to the word of God and will guide us in ways that would be completely opposite of a follower of Jesus. Now, please don't hear me. Don't misunderstand me. There, there are good godly counselors that are, that are gonna encourage you in the word and that's a good thing. But we need to be careful about where we're getting guidance for how to live. We wanna make sure that guidance that, that we look to is faithful to the word of God. Sometimes I'll see a book and it'll be something like uh, it's in the Christian bookstore, like how to hear the voice of God. And I always think, does it take a book for that? Um, but apparently it does because I always think, you know, when I read this, I just heard the voice of God. As I read the word, I heard his voice. There's a sense in which Christians are always looking for something new when God has given us just what we need right here. This is all that we need. It's sufficient. Or, or sufficient. Think about that word. It, it is enough. I, I see uh, a lot of the, the popular books that, that are being sold. Uh, one, of the, one of the most popular devotions is uh, a lady who, who hears directly from Jesus and then she writes those words down. And then she says, hey, read this. These are the words that Jesus gave me. That makes me so nervous. Is scripture sufficient or do we need something else? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm all for reading good books and studying and learning. But when we're talking about direct words from God, it's here and it's not anywhere else. It's just right here. Uh, another area that, that I see this fleshed out is the heaven tourism books. You know, the, the books where somebody dies, they go to heaven for a few minutes, they come back and then they tell the story and some of those have admittedly been false. And people are so excited about that. Oh, I wanna, I wanna tell you what heaven's like. Brothers and sisters, the word, it's sufficient. If I want to know what heaven's like, I'm going to go to the book. You see, the, the cry of the Reformation was scripture alone, and it should be our cry too. We shouldn't take those things as authoritative. We should always judge those things by the book. We shouldn't be looking for, for some other new fresh word when God has given us everything we need for life and godliness right here. Number four, scripture is clear and can be understood. Scripture is clear and can be understood. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So the word is not mystical. Like I want to look at the, book, the Bible and see if I can come up with some secret code hidden when I look at this letter and then I look at every 10th letter and I'm going to see there's some sort of a hidden code there. No, the Bible's meant to be read and plainly understood. That, that, that the common man, the common woman can understand the word. In fact, much of the word can, can even be understood by children. The scriptures are meant to be clear. There are parts of the Bible that are more difficult to understand, and we'll talk about those in a moment. When Martin Luther was so committed to the, to the clarity of scriptures, to the fact that the scriptures were meant to be read, not just by the clerics or the priests, but that the scriptures were meant to be read by the people, that he poured his life and time into translating the Bible into German and to, to, to see the German Bible distributed so that every man and every woman and every boy and every girl could, could read the Bible, could read the words of God for himself or herself and wouldn't need a priest or a mediator to, to, to tell them. 
but they themselves could read the word and, and understand it and make sense of it. Now, what about when there is disagreement about Scripture? Well, we remember uh, some essentials in interpreting Scripture. First, sp- the Spirit illumines the hearts of believers. We shouldn't expect that a person who doesn't know Jesus, who comes to the Scriptures, are going to make sense of them. They're, they're not. The Spirit enables believers to, to, to read the Word and to understand. Again, you can look in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13. We don't have time to look at those together today. But what about when there's confusion about what the Scriptures say? Well, one of the important principles uh, of the Reformation was this. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when there's a less clear Scripture... We're going to look where there's a more clear scripture. If this says something about prayer that I don't quite understand, then I'm going to look at other places where the Bible talks about scripture. And I'm going to be comparing the parts of the scripture to the whole of the book. So when we begin to do this, certain core truths become clear, become become obvious. Now, there are always secondary issues that Christians are going to disagree with, but core essential truths of Christianity are, are clear and commonly held among Protestants who believe the Bible. Fifth, master the word and be mastered by the word. Master the word and be mastered by the word. Read the word, study the word, memorize the word. Seek to live it out. Let the Bible shape how you view things. Let the Bible shape your affections, what you long for and desire. Let the Bible shape your words, what you speak. Let the Bible shape your actions. How do we do that? We read it. Every day we study it, we memorize it, we, we meditate on it. These things help us, help us know him. Six, scripture is sufficient in the life of the church. Scripture is sufficient in the life of the church. We ought to always be asking as a church, how can we follow scripture? We believe the Bible really does speak about how a church should operate. So when it comes to organization or polity, we want to go to the book. When it comes to how ministry should be carried out, we want to go to the book. This spares us from chasing the latest fad or the latest gimmick. Instead, we believe the word is sufficient in the life of the believer and the life of the church, and we order the church around the word. When we gather together for worship, we want the word to be central. We want to read the word. We want to pray the word. In other words, we want to have prayers that are influenced by the the scriptures. We want to sing the word. We want our songs to be rich in scripture and rich in theology. We want to preach the word. We want sermons that are faithful to the book. Not that are a, a preacher that gets up here and tells his opinions about everything, but a preacher that sticks with the book. We want to see the word observed in the ordinances, the, the drama of, of baptism and the drama of the Lord's Supper as the gospel is put on display visually. The gospels preach visually. Now, there's a temptation in the church, and I feel it as a pastor. There's a temptation to want to imitate what the world does because you can draw crowds quicker. Let's, let's put on a really good show. More people will come, and in the short term, it's a good thing, it seems. But in the long term, you don't produce a people who are really shaped by the hand of God because God works through his word. And you don't produce a people when the suffering and hardships of life come are able to endure because only the word can, can give you that kind of strength and bolster you in the hardships of life. And so we must be committed to the word, not opinions or whims. It's easy for a church to, to allow what we've always done to trump the word. We've got to be careful that we don't get in ruts. And we want to we ask, what does the word say? It's easy for a church to get focused on, on fads and, and new ideas and allowing these to trump scripture. No, we always want to come back to the book. Seventh, 
Preaching of the word should be central in Christian worship. Preaching of the word should be central because the word is God's word for us. And because we believe scripture alone is the authority, the word ought to be prominent in in the worship service. Preaching through books of the Bible, expositional preaching, that ought to be normative in the life of the church. In Nehemiah 8, verse 8, when Nehemiah had gathered the people together, this wall was being built, and Nehemiah had gathered the people together, and he had Ezra read the law of God. And this is what Nehemiah 8, 8 says. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And there's what should be happening when the church gathers for worship. The book should be read and it should be explained faithfully. In fact, during the Reformation, the architecture began to reflect this. Prior to the Reformation, generally the pulpit was over to the left. But as the Reformation occurred, church architecture began to reflect the centrality of the word and worship and the pulpit was put in the center as a way to reflect the authority that the word should have in the church. Now, Luther continued speaking out against what he saw as the church's mistakes and errors. He continued speaking out about what he believed the word of God taught. And of course, the church opposed him. In 1521, he was summoned to, bef- to appear before an imperial council at the Diet of Worms. At this assembly, his books were laid out and they demanded that he recant, that he say, I don't believe this anymore. Now, while some historians have argued that these are not Luther's exact words, it is reported that this is what Luther said. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive to the word of God I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now Luther was condemned there that day at the Diet of Worms and it put his life in danger. He slipped away quietly and and he was kidnapped by Frederick the Wise and he was held in the Wartburg Castle. And while he was in that castle, he began translating uh, the, the, the New Testament into German. And what we see in Luther, if you, if you read Luther, you'll find out that he's far from a perfect man, that, that he has a lot of warts just like the rest of us do. But what you're gonna see is a man who is committed to scripture alone as the authority for life. And brothers and sisters, that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. Scripture alone is the word of God and because of that, it orders our life. Believers, are you reading the word? Do you make time daily to read the word? Are you seeking to submit and obey the holy word of God? Now, I want to speak to you today if you're here and you're not a believer. Friends, the word of God is clear. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're here today and you've never been born again, there's never been a decisive moment in your, in your life where you've turned away from sin and said to God, I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to follow you. I believe in Jesus. Today, you could do that. In just a moment, we'll stand and sing. You could come to the front. I'll be here. Ralph will be here. We would love to tell you more about how you could know Jesus personally, about how you could know God and have eternal life. For this is what the word of God calls you to life in Christ. Join me in prayer.